at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. everyone welcome to another episode of the Turing podcast i'm ed and i'm here with b and joe b how are you doing hello 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 everyone i'm doing okay how are you ed yeah not bad how about you joe yeah i'm doing i'm doing good um also okay we're both in agreement that we were okay before we started <laughs> recording so <laughs> yeah we've agreed that the covid pandemic is still ongoing but actually i'm feeling cautiously optimistic about the state of affairs in the uk i, I don't know about how you two are feeling with the vaccination progress and so on skeptically optimistic that's what i because <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to be excited anymore and a year ago we were all and only we haven't even we hadn't even entered lockdown properly a year ago i know so. we had we had we had because it was was uh, it when it started we're yeah, recording was, this yeah. after mother's day and i remember that it distinctly that it was the day after mother's yeah, day yeah, last yeah, year that's true that we went into lockdown the first time so it has been over a year unfortunately i think <laughs> so yeah but it was whew, doesn't seem like a year seems like uh Three decades. It's, oh, right. Okay. You're going to say, in, in a weird way, it seems like a long time, yet also a short time. Yeah, because exactly. Not, nothing much interesting has happened. So, <laughs> but anyway, our, our episode today is about all about the pandemic. And specifically, it's about um, which uh, policies were most effective at uh, mitigating the spread of COVID-19. Uh, but before we get to that, we are going to spin Alan Turing's Wheel of Fun. And the game that we have selected today, uh, back by popular request, is Blind Data. Right. Yay! And by popular request, you mean we wanted to play that again? You mean the wheel? The wheel isn't as random as maybe. The, the wheel has a mind of its own. Yeah, has the mind of it, it knows Turing. what the people want, doesn't it? The wheel. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It knows what the people want, and what the people want is blind data. So let me just uh, recap for the audience's benefit and for your benefit, uh, B and Joe, uh, what the uh, the aim of the game is. The aim is to choose which mystery person from a selection of three sounds most interesting to grab a coffee with for a friendly, non-romantic date. The contestants could be either gender, and they are all living people from uh, the worlds of science and technology, living people. Um, So try to hold off with saying who you think the mystery dates are until you've made your decision about who you prefer. And you're going to get to start with, you're going to get a description of each mystery date and then have the chance to ask one question of each, which I'll do my best to answer. Are you ready to play? Cannot wait. (laughs) okay so let's start with mystery date number one so mystery date number one has over 300 scientific publications and holds honorary doctorates from 23 universities you may have seen this person on screen alongside children cavemen or twins (laughs) any thoughts about uh, mystery date number one off the bat certainly impressive yes um i might have quite a inferiority complex if i pick them to go on a coffee (laughs) with um but also sounds very interesting i should add something i should have said before was and this applies to all three mystery dates there's a there's a chance you may know some of these people um you may have met them either in person or virtually um and that that could apply to any of the three so so bear that in mind 
Um, uh, are you okay. ready to hear, hear about mystery date number two? Yes. Okay, so mystery date number two gained a Nobel Prize for pioneering a new technique several years earlier, which, uh, sorry, in 2020 gained a Nobel Prize. That's a crucial bit of information. Um, for the technique which can potentially be used to enhance any biological organism, from plants to bacteria to people. This person grew up in Hawaii, but nowadays lives and works in California. Thoughts on mystery guest number two? I feel like any person that we would pick to go for a coffee would just be like, hello. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have anything interesting to tell you. (laughs) Well, I thought you might be interested as a biologist by training, be in uh, mystery guest number two. Yes, Um, yes. It does sound very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Let's go for mystery date number three then. So mystery date number three was named on the Data IQ 100 list of the most influential people in data in 2020. And this person cares a lot about the real-world impact of data science and AI research, and their career has taken them to Toronto, New York, and London. When asked who inspired them, this person named the violinist Itzhak Perlman. Interesting. Yeah, thoughts on number three? Well, I will say, like classical music... (laughs) Okay, okay. I love the violin, so maybe <laughs> maybe we'll have one thing in common that's not um, doing groundbreaking data science research. <laughs> <laughs> you, at least you work somewhere where other people are doing groundbreaking uh, data science research. Yeah, I can just pretend. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you've got a chance to ask a question about each of them. So mystery date number one lots of publications and honorary doctorates uh do you have what question would you like to ask about mystery date number one go on (laughs) i'm gonna go to b b ask (laughs) guys um are all of the publications in the same science field or is are these like spread uh it's over different fields. Yeah, so I think this person is definitely very multidisciplinary. And I think the fact that they are quite a big fish and probably have a lot of collaborations going on in different fields means that it will be spread. They do have a specialism. And um, yes, yeah, so as I said, you may have seen them on screen alongside children, cavemen, or twins. <laughs> interesting selection (laughs) caveman bit particularly is quite intriguing (laughs) any thoughts about who this person might be none at all okay so i'm going to give you a little bit of a hint so this is one of the people who you may have met previously i think i know who this is okay so don't say it yet but joe's got an inkling (laughs) ringing any bells senses are tingling (laughs) Still no, but it's good Plumics. to know. <laughs> okay, let, let's move to the the person who I mentioned you might be most interested in, B, who has the Nobel Prize for uh, pioneering a new technique which can be used to enhance any biological organism. Um, what what question would you like to ask about this person? Is it me asking the question? It can be Joe. I can ask oh, yeah, e- either of you can ask a question. Go ahead, yeah. Uh, so no. What do they like doing outside of work? Well, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, it's not a question that I'm best placed to answer. <laughs> there is a flaw in this game that you have to ask them something that I might know about them. Something on the Wikipedia page, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, you know, they they grew up in Hawaii and now live mm. in California, so... Surfing? Guessing they like the outdoors, Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, they wouldn't like the UK weather. <laughs> no, no, yeah, definitely not. Would I be um, flown to meet them in California if I pick them? Uh, yes. <laughs> that is a good Interesting. question. <laughs> that, is, that is a very important point. <laughs> um, I was wondering, B, do you have any ideas about what the groundbreaking uh, technique used to enhance biological organisms, biological organisms might be? I have some ideas, but I don't want to say anything okay. for not being wrong. <laughs> well, let's go back to mystery date number three. 
So this is a person who respects the violinist Itzhak Perlman and is a cares a lot about data science and AI research. Again, I'm going to give you a hint that this is someone you may know. So uh, <laughs> Joe's looking very intrigued by that. Um, and it, what question would either of you like to ask about this person, Mr. Guest number three? I feel like now there's two people that we're going to disappoint or potentially disappoint. <laughs> but I'm not picking them. Well, at yes. least there's a two in three chance that you will pick one of them. So Yes, yes. Can I ask like, how, how we'd know them in how what context? I'll tell you what, I'll give you a cute clue that you would know them through work. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so we would know someone that works with data through. <laughs> it's incredibly surprising that that's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. What you can you still got a question to ask about this person? So if you can think of something. Do you, can you think of anything, Joe? You look either intrigued or thinking about a question. <laughs> Same face. <laughs> Same expression. Um, well, have you heard enough? I, I, yeah. <laughs> My mind is made up. <laughs> I was going to. I was going to ask if they also play instruments, uh, or if they're. Hmm. I don't. I don't know the answer to that, but I can give. <laughs> I can give you. I can give you a bit of trivia off this person's bio, which is that. Yeah. They used to work at EMI Music, um, but I don't think that's going to help you guess who that's it is. Cool. But that's, it is cool. That's very yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, okay. So, so you have <laughs> you have some information about these three mystery guests. Um, I'm now going to ask, who would you like to take on a friendly platonic date? Uh, let's go to Joe first. Who of our three mystery guests will you choose? So I am very split on this one because I think... They all sound like they'd be excellent platonic coffee dates. Um, but I'm, on this occasion, I'm going to go with number three. Okay. Okay. Any particular reason? The love of violin, perhaps? Yeah, the music element. I'm, I think I'm intrigued um, about. Um, also intrigued that I already might know them. <laughs> um, but yeah, the music, the music element has intrigued me. Okay, I'll ask B for her choice, and then we'll go. We'll see if um, uh, any I'm of you can guess with... who they are. Go on. I'm going to go with the choice of being flown to California because it's. I think it's always Sweet. cool <laughs> to, to <laughs> just just for a coffee. Can you imagine having a life and you're like, yeah, just was flew to California to have to grab a coffee with yeah. a Nobel Prize. Just <laughs> that's yeah, who I Nobel am. Prize winner. That's yeah. how it is. <laughs> yes. Cool. Fair enough. Very much a lifestyle choice. And uh, do either of you have any uh, sensible guesses or, or not sensible guesses about who, who they might be? Your choices? I, I, will, I will plead my right to be silent in this and <laughs> not embarrass myself any further. It's not, you can guess anyone in the world. Go, Joe, go on, make a guess. So, um, so I think potentially the first person might be Robert Winston. Ding, ding. Correct answer. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so neither of you chose Robert Winston to go on a platonic date with. That's, that's sad. Robert Winston, for those of you people who don't know, is a professor of fertility studies at Imperial College London and former Turing podcast guest. Mm. So It was very close, though. I, I will say that. It was close, yeah. Yeah, perhaps the next time I should intentionally choose less impressive people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, in reality, happily would go on a coffee date with all of those people. All of probably. them, yeah. <laughs> yes. All right, so of the, of the two that you both picked then, um, would anyone like to have a guess as to who they've picked? Um, B doesn't, so you're both shaking your heads now. Okay. Yeah, I actually don't know. Okay, so I'm going to reveal the mystery d dates that uh, you, you're both going on then. So B, you're going on a date with Jennifer Doudna, American biochemist known for her pioneering, pioneering work in CRISPR gene editing. Mm, yes. 
I, I, I thought it was going to be CRISPR gene editing, but I didn't want to say anything just in you've case got to I guess, was wrong. You've, you've got to guess this is not how the game works. Uh, no, to... <laughs> 2020 seemed, like 2020 seems like seven, several years together. So I was like, was it the prize from this year? Or, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. five years ago. I did try, I did try to say in that clue, uh, Nobel Prize for Pioneering Technique. Uh, developed several years ago, but yeah. I may not have emphasized that well enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and Joe, your person who you'd like to go on a platonic coffee date with is, um, our very own Christine Foster from the Alan Turing oh, Institute. That's um, great. The CCO of the Alan Turing Institute. So yeah, she cares a lot about uh, data science and AI research, obviously. Um, yeah, that's very cool. Happily, happily go on a coffee date with Christine. <laughs> nice. I feel like we should be able to go to on coffee dates with all the people that you you bring. It would be nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I really don't think you've uh, grasped the concept of of, of blind date. Here, but... <laughs> That's not what happens. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, optimistic. See, <laughs> just imagine you being on the re- real show and be like, hmm, "I'll take all of them, please." <laughs> All right, well, without further ado, let's uh, go to today's uh, guests. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 and what were the best policies, what were the best lockdown policies in tackling the spread of the virus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cheering Podcast. Today, we're joined by Soren Minderman and Renank Sharma, who are both PhD students from Oxford University. Renank works as part of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute and the Statistics Department, and Soren is a member of Oxford Applied and Theoretical Machine Learning Group. And today, we'll be talking about the research they've recently had published on inferring the effectiveness of government interventions against COVID-19. Soren and Renek, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. So, it's great yeah, to be well, hello, welcome. And but before we go into the research itself, because we're going to talk about that, can you both tell us a little bit about your back- background? How did you end up studying machine learning at Oxford before the pandemic hit? Um, how did you basically get here? Should we go to Renek first? Yeah, I can. I can go first. Um, yeah, so I guess I guess when I was younger, I, I always wanted to like use science to like build something and and do something which is going to have like some impact. So at at the time, I like I applied to do aerospace engineering at university. I thought engineering was the, the natural like science, but it's more applied. Um, and I was I was pretty lucky in the sense that the the degree I was doing was general engineering rather than specifically aerospace engineering. Um. And in my third and fourth year, I sort of realized that I'm really interested and excited by machine learning. And I think the technology has like a really big impact. So in my third and fourth year, I specialized in, in machine learning. Um, did a, did a research project in my fourth year. And after that, I went straight into machine learning at Oxford. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, same question to Soren. How did you get to be where you are? Um, so I sort of come from a, math background as well as environmental science for my undergrad and and then went into machine learning for the masters um, because I thought, you know, machine learning could be a really big deal, uh, especially in the future. You know, what if we do succeed with AI uh, someday? Um, and it seemed to me important to make sure that uh, we can build systems that um optimize for goals that are aligned with what we actually want, human values, or even just our basic, like, everyday desires. Um, and after that, well, I wasn't quite sure about doing a PhD yet, so I did some research internships in uh, Toronto, Berkeley, and Oxford. And um, after that, I figured I'm ready for uh, to sort of double down on research, um, do the PhD in Oxford, both with Yarn Yards Group, uh, which is like a machine learning group, and co-supervised with Alan uh, uh, so, um AI governance researcher. Um, so, although I haven't worked on that area quite so much yet, but I'm thinking of doing that more. 
And COVID came along and I was going to just uh, help out with this uh, burgeoning paper for a couple of days, which turned into a full-time job for quite a few <laughs> months. And here we are. Awesome. Uh, you, you've segued us really nicely into asking, yeah, how with those backgrounds and the things you were working on before, did you end up uh, writing this COVID-related paper? I guess it's a bit of a silly question in a way because so many research scientists in the last year or so have ended up, uh, you know, diverting their research to one area of COVID or another. So it is is a pretty pretty obvious question to ask. But yeah, <laughs> so your research in particular is looking at. Um, how different countries' policies or interventions um, have been, uh, how effective they've been during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and specifically, you're talking about what you call non-pharmaceutical interventions. Um, can you give us some examples of uh, some of the the interventions that you were looking at uh, to begin with? Uh, let's go to Marinak. So, yeah, I mean, most countries have a wide variety of interventions. Um, the ones we looked at were closing businesses, uh, so like closing bars, closing restaurants, closing nightclubs, and also closing retail shops, um, gathering, uh, banning gatherings of people, so you know not have to meet uh, in, in groups of six or with any other people, uh, closing schools, closing universities, and also a stay-at-home order. That's that's when the government sort of says you know stay at home when you can without you know. You know, with with some with some exceptions. I mean, it's obviously, the, as we've come to know it. <laughs> yeah, obviously, there's a, there's a whole host of like other interventions that that countries did, like um, blocking flights from other countries. But th- those are the ones that we looked at. Okay, cool. Okay. Um. So now we you you couldn't study all. I guess you could study all the countries, but um. You, you, that would have been a bit too extensive. So you, you have to have picked some countries and that have had different experiences during the pandemic, right? Um, which countries did you select and why did you choose those countries in particular? So we're looking at like 41 countries and the sample of countries, I mean, it's a mix of, uh, convenience, uh, availability of data. Um, but also, I mean, the vast majority of them, I think 35, 36 are European countries. So we've right. got a pretty good coverage there. Uh, and the other ones are sort of a little more spread out. Um, I forgot actually the exact other ones that we have in there. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's a mix of convenience. Um, and you had some in uh, mostly Asia, focusing Asia and, on, uh, and, uh, Australia, right? Um, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think we didn't have Australia, but maybe New Zealand. Uh, no, no, New Zealand. no, not New Zealand, not New Zealand, no. no? New Zealand, we would have actually excluded because one of the criteria is, um, if, if, if it was a country with a highly effective contact tracing system or just a country that somehow managed to totally suppress the uh, pandemic, right. uh, this wouldn't have been, um, they were too thing. effective. This is this yeah. is what happened in New Zealand. <laughs> they were too good. It, it just breaks modeling assumptions. Uh, that's interesting, actually. So the so the aim of the research, really, to begin with, was to look at the countries which are. Um, and I guess you started. I think I remember you started this back in May. So it was really the countries that were struggling with the pandemic, rather than um, comparing them against those which were, you know, had clearly eradicated or, uh, you know, got the situation with the virus under control. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> cool. Um, so most most of them were in were in Europe, and yeah, I, I guess what B was getting at there is that we we've we've all had you know different countries have had very very different experiences of the pandemic. So, um, like, could you give us some maybe some examples of um, like some of the, the different uh, interventions that uh, that differed between countries? So, I mean, one, one obvious example is, and this isn't something that we studied in, in our paper as such, but some of the countries, especially in Asia, sort of mandated mask wearing very, very early on in, in the pandemic, sort of like South, South Korea did this. But in, in the UK, mandates sort of only came into place, uh, around May. Um, and there's, there's other differences too. Sweden, uh, clo- didn't close, didn't close all their schools, 
Um, mm, obviously, yeah, it's a very yeah. contentious issue, but yeah, not every country chose their schools. Um, not every so country has a safe one. home order. Right, right. So there's obviously these interventions are clearly things which vary from country to country, hence choosing 41 countries rather than just studying like two countries, for instance. Um, so, so was that part of the motivation for choosing a large selection of countries to, to get like a real, um, spread of, uh, like different approaches to these interventions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, you know, there were already some analyses of smaller numbers of countries. Um, but we found that, well, it just didn't seem realistic that you could really uh, tell apart the, the effect of each individual intervention with a small sample. And, and yeah, that's, that's in, indeed partly due to the fact that, um, there's actually quite a lot of similarity between countries. Um, and so you need more of them. Um, you also find that there's some similarity between inf- interventions. Um, probably we all remember, um, in whatever country we were in that, uh, the interventions were generally started in March or April, uh, mm-hmm, yeah. in, in somewhat close succession. It varies. Sometimes it's just a week, sometimes it's like over a period of three weeks or so or four. Um, but this sort of similarity in the starting dates between the interventions means that, um, you need more data in order to disentangle the effects. Right. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I mean, it definitely felt like at the time, you know, during the first lockdown in the UK, that it was something that uh, a lot of people criticised it of being, you know, it came a bit too late. But I think they only were saying that on the basis of, like, clearly other countries have done this policy right before us and now we're copying them. Um, But, yeah, it's interesting to see that there was obviously a lot of consistency across countries as well as differences. Um so before we before we ask you a bit about like what your actual findings were with this research, um, in determining like which of these interventions uh, were the most effective at uh, limiting the spread of COVID nineteen, um, what what exactly was it that you were measuring to uh, to make those judgment calls? Uh, I, I I can answer. Um, so what what we're really interested in is if I apply this intervention. Um, how much will that like reduce reduce tr- transmission? And I mean, I guess I guess we all not know these days um, that like ours will typically use yeah uh, like transmission. That was what so, I was going to ask: was, is it the is it yeah. the R number yourself for your that that the, that's the metric by which you use? Yeah, so so we we sort of categorize everything as like reductions reductions in R, um, and sort of like briefly briefly the way it works is that. You know, we, we build this model which has assumptions and these assumptions say, if the R is this, how do the case and deaths look? Um, and then we can say, if an intervention changes R, they should change the cases and deaths. And then based on a bunch of cases and deaths in lots of different countries, we can then try and work backwards to work out the effective interventions, you know, through the assumptions that we've made in the modeling. Okay. You're, it's a good, you're leading into, to already talking about a little bit of what you have, but, can you guys tell us a little bit about the key findings of your paper and what they actually mean for government policy going forward from here? Because um, I guess we're still going to have this pandemic for a couple more days, maybe. <laughs> it's not quite. <laughs> At the time yet. this podcast comes out, podcast comes out, you know, it's not going to be important anymore. Um, no, um, yeah. So key findings. Um, so the most the. According to our findings, the most effective interventions would have been uh, closing uh, education institutions, schools, and universities together, uh, then closing gatherings, limiting them all the way down to 10 participants or less, and and um, closing most non-essential businesses. Um, so some some pretty intense interventions. Um, um, we found sort of moderate effects for closing gather banning gatherings to uh bigger sizes maybe less than less than 100 people or less than 1000 people and and um so did you say that and, and, it was only moderate effects for banning gatherings like that yeah is that, uh, is and, that because they though you're talking about things which would you know happen outside like festivals and so on sorry 
Is there is the reason for that? Um, you think that the, uh, the 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 difference of banning them is only moderate because they those sort of sort of gatherings tend to happen outside. Uh, yeah, that's a great point. Um, uh, well, we don't know. Um, in the period that we were studying, uh, most of the gathering probably at at the moment that the that the sort of closings, the lockdowns, and gathering cancellations happen. Mm. So March, April. Um, I'm guessing most of them would have been on inside, and we know that in the right, papers. Right. So probably we're measuring more, mostly the effect of indoor gatherings. Um, but you're right that there can be an important difference, and most people who think about this kind of stuff these days seem to believe that outdoor gatherings are uh, less dangerous. Um, but yeah, I mean it's 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 just the the findings are very intuitive on this and that like if you if you restrict gatherings to 10 people or less you're going to have a bigger effect than if you restrict them to only 100 people or less and let sort of between 10 and people uh, yeah. 10 and 100 people let that happen yeah that's that all seems uh, totally logical so uh, i mean it, it's great that your your research has backed that, that that sort of common sense up really uh, was were there any like um uh, anything, any interventions that stood out as being like particularly effective or ineffective, perhaps that, that caught you by surprise? So I, I think the, I think the big one at the time was was schools, schools and universities. Mm. Um, and so when we were doing the research, especially especially back in May, I'd say that the role of like school closures was was obviously a very debated, uh, it was yeah, very yeah. very contentious issue, and it also it also wasn't really clear whether it's making making a big difference. Right, or you know right. maybe maybe we could have had a lockdown w- without closing schools, um, but we consistently found that closing school schools and universities in conjunction was was high was like effective. Uh, so yeah, I'd say I'd say that was a really a really really big one. And I think something interesting that else like hit, came out of it was that we compared closing just the the really risky businesses like bars, like uh, like nightclubs compared to closing like all retail businesses. And we found that you can get actually like a reasonable way just by closing the most risky businesses. So maybe about two thirds of the effect comes from closing the, the riskiest businesses. And then the additional effect of closing everything else um, is, is a bit less. So, you know, it sort of suggests that really targeting exactly which businesses you close can like go a long way. But I'd also like to, to caveat all of this discussion with our analysis was based in, in March, April, May. The right, situation right. now is, yeah. is, is, is very different. When schools open, when schools are open now, they're opening in like a totally different way with you no know, right, restricted right. classroom sizes. Um, so I really wouldn't, I, I would, these results, they, they gave us some like historical understanding. And, and maybe in, in March and April, a lot of transmission, I'd say, was happening in schools and universities. That doesn't mean there's a lot of transmission now happening in schools and universities. So hmm. I would Weather just, you know, opinion. take those estimates and lump up, lump them in over over here. Uh, there's a lot more, lot more caveats. That was going to be what I was going to ask now, actually, because I was going to ask what specific time frame and how how do you think this influences right now? Because it was uh, schools was something that hap- that opened pretty much everywhere a few months ago, um, most countries. So. That, that was. <laughs> well, I, I, our period of analysis would be until the first of June, um, so you know everything that happened after that had no impact on our results. And yeah, I mean, Merrick already hinted at this, but a specific reason why effectiveness might be different now in the second wave is because there are safety measures. So, for example, in the schools, mm-hmm. they would have um, reduced class sizes, some kind of testing, maybe masks. Um, and so the historical effectiveness in the first wave is only sort of a starting point for what we might get now. So now the effect of essentially any intervention is going to be smaller. Um, and closing anything is going to be smaller because... We're already taking precautions when we go to schools, businesses, and so on. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting finding, though, because you know, as you said uh, at the time, Renank, it was it was obviously quite a controversial thing. You know, 
nobody wanted to close schools. And so there's obviously a huge incentive to uh, prevent that from happening. Um, and also I think the, the logic behind people thinking, oh, well, it might be okay in the, in the way that like other kinds of large gatherings wouldn't be is because we know from the, the case data or at least from the death data that children are not getting severely ill in general dying. And so there was a hope that perhaps, ah, that means that they're also not spreading it as much. But of course, no one really knew whether that was the case. And so there was kind of like, a, well, let's cross our fingers and hope that that is the case. Um, but yeah, your analysis sort of shows that, okay, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it's, it's one of the things that, that points out that, um, so, and at the time, it seemed very convincing, actually, that schools wouldn't mm. play such a big role because, well, you know, when you tested a bunch of children in May, let's say, you would find very low rates of COVID infections. Uh, but looking right, back right. at it, yeah. this was probably more likely to be because the kids were just at home. They were not going to school, so less chance for them to get infected. Yeah, I guess, I guess something else I'll add in. Uh, as it's another like note of caution is that our analysis and a, and a bunch of other analysis out there, um, they use this, this data from like March, March to June. And in almost all the countries, countries close schools and universities at the same time, which means that we can only, we can only really say with confidence that closing schools and universities together had, had a big effect, but we can't, right, right. we can't say it was schools that had the big effect. University can make a difference. Uh, or the other way around. I think, I mean, my belief would be, you know, based on my prior reasons that maybe the effects, I wouldn't say, I'd say they both had significant effects. We just can't tell them apart. But, um, this is still, say, still contentious. Yeah. yeah. So, so unknown. Well, that, that leads me quite nicely to what I was going to ask you next, which is that, you know, in reality, a lot of these different interventions will have been packaged together under some like single national lockdown policy. Um, how did you untangle the effectiveness of specific interventions, uh, given that that's was pretty much always the case? I would imagine, or at least I would imagine that's always the case across the countries you, you looked at. Yeah. So from the data side, you need two things to disentangle them. One is differences in timing and the other differences in differences between countries. Uh, so differences in timing, meaning, you know, maybe, uh, this, one, maybe schools were closed on 14th of March and then, um, something else happened on 30th of March and you see that R drops on 30th of March. Then that was probably due to the later intervention, uh, that happened on 30th of March. Um, so we can use this type of variation, but it's, it's really important there to get the delays exactly right. So we need to know exactly when R dropped. And, but we only have the case and death data. And, uh, so we have to be, we have to be very careful about, uh, what we assume, uh, is the delay between when a person gets infected and when it shows up later in, in the case and death data. Uh, so that was a major challenge. Um, yeah, in terms of variation between countries, well, you do see that as we talked about different countries use different interventions. And, uh, also with different outcomes, with different final values of R, uh, and in particular, f different changes in R from before versus after interventions. That gives you some information. But I think your question was also probably about the method. What, what do you do with right. this data? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, cause like you said, like if there's, if there's a timing difference between two interventions, then that sounds logical how you would, you would look for, whether there's the change in the R at one time or the other. Um, but yeah, if there, if things are brought in at the uh, same time, what, what was your approach there? Uh, so I, I'll add like a strong, a strong assumption that we made to help with this, the power in the analysis is that the effect of closing schools and universities is going to be similar in, in different countries. So if, if the UK, if the UK Closes schools and universities. It could have like a 30% reintroduction. And that, and we believe the reduction should be close if like Italy closes schools and universities. Um, and, and this means that because different countries do different things, 
um, you can sort of try to un- untangle these things together. Because, say, one country only did one intervention, then you could use that country on its own to work out the effect of that intervention, and then you could take that effect and apply it to other countries which did multiple interventions. Um, so we, we gain quite a lot of, of like statistical power by this assumption that the, the effectiveness is, is similar across countries. A model doesn't actually assume it's the exact same. We assume there's some, there's some slight differences because obviously different countries implemented things in different ways, but they're, they're quite strongly, strongly connected to the estimates. And you literally, right. yeah, this really gets a long way. And for the, for the more technical readers, I mean, this, all this is entangling is essentially done automatically for, uh, through a regression approach, um, where you basically get the effect of each intervention by controlling for the effect of every other intervention. Um, and, and, and also effect of just like time, time invariant differences between countries, such as, um, you know, some countries might have a better health system and therefore fewer deaths, but that sort of continue, uh, continues over time. It all stays the same over time. Uh, which countries surprised you for the better and which countries surprised you for the worst? Because I guess that's something that... If you, if you can spill the tea, right, with us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you're, are you asking about which... In which countries the interventions were more yeah. effective or less effective than we would expect? Yeah, like which countries had a different um, uh, result than you expected? Uh, so I, I'd say like our results are mostly about like the effectiveness of interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, so our analysis wasn't really looking at saying, oh, like this intervention was really effective in this country, mm. uh, less effective in this country. We're more just trying to say, okay, like on, on average across all the countries, um, how, how effective was, was, was doing something. Um, but I guess, I guess the more direct answer to your question, um, countries like New Zealand just in general have, have dealt with the pandemic, <laughs> uh, I think much better than say, than say the UK. Uh, I'm a bit jealous I didn't sort of like try and get into New Zealand um, sometime last year um, rather than be, be, be stuck in the UK. Um, Listen, yeah. we're, 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 all of us in our 20s will, I'm sure, be uh, emigrating to New Zealand or Australia at some point uh, in, the, in, the, in the next winter if, if uh, Europe doesn't get this under control. So. Well, you know, I hear that New Zealand is actually very slow with the vaccinations, whereas the really? UK is okay. yeah. one of the fastest. So, you know. Maybe it'll turn all. Maybe it'll turn around. Yeah. Ho- hopefully next winter, both the UK and the New Zealand and, and New Zealand are going. Oh to yeah, fine. hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I hopefully. guess I guess New Zealand have less of a have less of an incentive to be really quick with the vaccine, mm. given they uh, seem to have things mostly under control. But they're they're more chilling than we are. But also, is <laughs> so if you yeah. think about it, I don't know if any if you've played um, the the plague. Uh, a game on the phone but in the, in the world <laughs> basically so 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 plague was this game where you are a disease and you need to infect all the countries in the world and the most one of the most difficult countries to infect is um is an island is madagascar because as soon as someone coughs in the world they close all ports so i guess new zealand is the new madagascar in, in like the world when in relation to covid <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's, uh, raises an interesting point. Uh, I mean, was, was, uh, border closure one of the interventions that, uh, you, that was, uh, a factor in your research or was that outside the scope? Uh, so, so closing borders, it doesn't really fit into the same framework, uh, as all other interventions. So to sort of explain this, um, we would expect, you know, if we close schools, or we close universities, people who would transmit the disease to others, they can't do it anymore because they're staying at home. But if I, if I'm a country and I, and I close my borders, it means that people from other countries can't come in and sort of start an infection locally. Um, and like for, for this reason, uh, like travel closures and travel bans weren't something that we could really, we could really like incorporate into analysis. It doesn't fit in very well. Um, so 
We didn't, we didn't look into we, it. We did use it as a, so we controlled, uh, sorry, we um, collected data ourselves um, to get the highest possible quality. Um, but, uh, and we didn't collect order closures, but we used data from other data sets um, uh, as a sort of validation. Uh, and we use, amongst other things, border closures as a, just to see how stable our results are once we control for border closures and, and similar things. So in the appendix, you will find it. <laughs> Fair enough. I guess just logically, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, especially at the times where the, the, the virus has been most out of control in any particular country. We certainly all said, oh, obviously, you know, as a matter of fairness, people shouldn't be flying in when we're in lockdown. But I guess it's easy to uh, to also think that perhaps like the vo total volume of people going from country to country might be quite small, especially given that most people probably don't want to travel compared to like the total number of people just being infected in their own country by just going around and, and you know, working and so on. Um, but yeah, d a difficult thing to, to work out to know for sure, I guess. Um, B, what are you going to say? Uh, I was going to go to the next question. So <laughs> oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. Because you told us that this is um, your findings are regarding the data from the first lockdown and it doesn't take into account how um, things are opening now with extra measures. But even so, what uh, findings do you think you can still could still be uh, could still advise government policy today, and what would what do you think? Which details um, of your research and of your finding uh, do you think are more relevant for now? Um, I can I can I, I can go ahead. You are uh, yeah I can I can go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, in some sense, we we if we know that in in March and April there were a lot there's a lot of transmission going on at schools and universities, it means that now we really have to put like lots of extra effort into making sure we can make schools as safe as possible uh, and schools as safe as possible. So these results can help inform what sort of parts of life, life have to be restructured to sort of cope with the pandemic. Um, and something else I think that transfers is uh, you know, if, you, if you target what you're doing well, I think you can, you can have, you can, you, you can get good reductions in R and not have to put like that many interventions on. So this this is the effect. The thing I said before that the effect of closing the risky businesses, you know, bars, restaurants, was quite significant. And the additional benefit of closing absolutely everything else is 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 less than that. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say I can say exactly this is what you have to close or you should keep you should keep this open. It's more so that we we need to think really about carefully targeting targeting things. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I guess any kind of research like this has to be thought of as something that could advise policy rather than is going to suggest direct uh, policy itself. Um, I have a, a little bit of a tangential question, which is that um, maybe this is, I don't know if you, if you guys have opinions on sort of the pace that science takes place. I mean, obviously we're in this um, situation in the last uh, over a year now where we've had this pandemic and a lot of aspects of science have really sped up from the vaccines to you know people just you know putting out preprints on their you know anything kind of covid related research um now it's that sounds like um the, the the one of the key findings that you've got from your research here which is obviously that school closures uh, are a really effective uh, measure at reducing the uh, COVID R value, um, like that would have been, e even if you don't think like that can, you know, directly uh, impact um, uh, what the policy should be, given that there's now additional uh, measures taking place in schools. It still obviously would have been an amazing thing to know, you know, back in September, for instance. So, um, given that your your data set was from the first lockdown and um, that's when you were presumably started doing research. Um, like, do you think it would have been possible to like, just like get that science out faster? Is there something that held you back or was it just that you were doing the research a bit later on in the year anyway? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it definitely would have been useful to get this out earlier. 
Um, I mean, we did post a preprint, so yeah, pre-publication. We posted a preprint right, right. in 1st of June or so, um, which had almost the same results. Um, and so it took a very long time. Um, but yeah, I think, well, it, 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 in terms of getting something like this to be sort of respected before it's in publication, um, it, it helps to be affiliated with some, with some big prestigious group, um, which we, you know, well, we are like machine learning people mostly. Uh, so we were not so plugged into the epidemiology community that right, we could just right. directly talk to the government or so. Um, so, um, groups like Sage exist. Um, but we, yeah, it, because we don't, we're not so plugged into that. I think, um, we couldn't. Uh, affect the discussions very quickly yeah and that's certainly not uh to your detriment at all i mean just uh, you can just imagine the huge volume of of preprints of different areas of research that people working at sage and other places would have been bombarded with so i mean yeah you can hardly be at fault for <laughs> for not for not getting their attention over other things um what what was it like in in june when you you sort of felt first like felt like you had that information did you feel like um like you knew something that other people didn't know no i would say it did it did feel like we knew we had like an important result um but the whole the whole like you know you you produce a bit of like academic work um and how that gets translated to policy you know who who reads this it's a total like black box to me right now i don't really know i don't really know i mean and we know the government like do look like I say look at preprints because there were preprints talking about the new strains in the UK and how they're very transmissible. And ba- based on that, uh, sort of like our research, we went into the, the third lockdown in, in December. Uh, right, right. So, but yeah, I think I saw inside it sort of happens with, you know, people, people at Sage have like close links to group, ac- ac- academic groups. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And like you said, you know, I mean, there's obviously an advantage of them being plugged into the like traditional epidemiology sort of uh, yeah. research institutes and universities and so on. Um, but yeah, it's really interesting because we have had other like podcast guests on before who've, who've in fact, we had an epidemiologist on before who, who was really like, you know, trying to talk to us about this kind of thing and like how different it is over the last year with um you know you'll get for instance uh newspapers and other media organizations who will just you know write a story based on a covid preprint if it's not published and there are some pretty serious disadvantages to that because the just preprint has not been peer reviewed it might not be like the results might not be replicate or other people might be able to find faults in it that a journalist wouldn't but on the other hand as you mentioned Marinank, with the the um uh, picking up those variants um, that were noticed in the UK that were that seem to have been proven to be more transmissible. Uh, the fact that those were picked up from preprints is obviously like that's quite good that that happened and that we didn't have to wait for those papers to be published in a, and peer reviewed in a journal before, which could have taken months or or um, or perhaps even years, as <laughs> I think some of my scientific colleagues have found out, unfortunately. And I guess I guess you guys felt vindicated when months after you had your first results, people are like, "Oh yes, sh- shutting schools was um, um, was effective," and you guys were, "Duh, we've been." <laughs> <laughs> it was more so just groans that were in the situation again. You know, yeah, in, in, yeah. in the summer, I thought, I thought, I thought we just got to control it from here on, you know, and we can have the rest of the year. But um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, ideally, anything, it, wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't have happened the way it, the way it happens. Yeah, well, exactly. If anything, you didn't want to be right. Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I, I just wonder. I, I think we'll 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 start to wrap up now. But um, is there any are, are there any other like um, thoughts about the pandemic that you have that you want to share on the podcast? Um, I know, like, there's a. Uh, there's obviously um, what your paper research is, but then we also talked a bit about some of the wider sort of policy discussions around New Zealand and so on. Uh, actually, let, let me ask you this. Um, so, I mean, my, my sort of like pet theory is that 
yeah, obviously, New Zealand, Australia, they had this advantage of being an island, right? And Asian countries that have done well in the pandemic have the fact that they experienced um, uh, the first uh, SARS outbreak. So they, they had some more like preparedness. Um, and, and there's obviously a debate going on in society. I'm sure all of you have had it with your friends and family. It's like, how much can we blame our like British government or other European governments for like getting things wrong? Or is it like a lot of, you know, I mean, other countries have done badly as well. Um, do you, do you have any thoughts on like, yeah, w- where to like lay the blame? <laughs> I don't know how better to ask it. Besides the virus, you, you can't blame the virus. You have to blame. <laughs> yes, well, we can all blame the virus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if I had to put the blame somewhere, I wouldn't put it only with politics. Well, so one thing to note first is maybe, um, I mean, the UK is also an island, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah, good point. And that yeah. didn't seem to have to help that much. Um, also, I think if the United States had been an island, I, I doubt that they would have done much better. <laughs> um, maybe they were a very small island, perhaps. Um, and yeah, I mean, I remember back in January, February, there were a few voices raising concern, but even in the scientific community, um, it took a while to sink in. Um, it, it, it just seemed too crazy, I think, to imagine that, um, something really drastic could happen when the case numbers were still very low. Um, but I think at that point, I, if I can be opinionated, mistakes were made. Like it, you could have told politicians, all right, better safe than story. Sorry. Um, lock things down, close borders immediately. Uh, even when the evidence wasn't totally crystal clear yet. And I think there's sort of two different philosophies of action where one says you should only act if you have like really strong evidence and one says better safe than sorry. I think better safe than sorry uh, would have been the right thing to do here much earlier, uh, both on the political side and also on the scientific advising side. There's also there's also the question, sorry, about if you're better safe than sorry, how many times would we uh, put these incredibly taxing, um, uh, um, sorry, incredibly taxing interventions, interventions to be safe on other things that actually never quite blew up? So yeah. I guess it's kind of a balance. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, ex- exactly, and. Um, I don't know. I mean, maybe, um, the fact that we had sort of close calls with like bird flu and swine flu, which actually didn't like blow up in, uh, in, in the West, um, made us a bit more complacent, including like the scientific community. I don't know. Absolutely. I think the, the WHO sort of got a bit of a, from what I hear, they, they were quite concerned about the swine flu and then it, it wasn't so bad after all. But there's a, I heard this from a, from a epidemiologist. Uh, there's a funny, or not funny, but just like interesting story, which was that it seemed like swine flu could get really bad, but what we, but we actually just got really lucky because it turned out that, so, so people were worried that it would kill a lot of older people. Uh, but then it turned out everybody who was born before 1957 was uh, partially immune because there was a very similar flu strain going out around that really? died out in 1957. Wow. And because of that, it turned out all much better than expected. Well, that is lucky. Um, Renan, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I have, um, I think it's, it's true that what, what you said, you know, you, you put down like a texting thing, uh, and you turn out to be wrong, but. I mean, in, in some sense, you, you do something strict for two weeks. And, you know, in that two weeks, maybe you find out evidence that this was the wrong thing to do. Um, because when you choose to do it, you don't know whether it's the right thing to do or not. You don't, that doesn't mean you have to go into lockdown for like six months. It means you can, you can start something like early and then you can still continually check, is this the best thing for us to be doing? Um, and I think, I think Soren, so, so I agree with Soren in the sense that our action Probably wasn't early enough, but I think, I think, unfortunately, I, I think we haven't really learned from the mistakes you made in the first wave. 
and I can understand why, why people got it wrong, uh, because it, it was difficult and there were a lot of things we didn't know. But if sort of, if you go back to June, uh, in the UK, you know, cases are relatively low, um, situations looking good. I don't think we would do the, what we ended up doing from June to January, knowing what we do now. Um, so I, I personally feel like I can, I can forgive people for, you know, making mistakes the first, first time around, but it's, yeah. um, you know, the important thing is that we, like, we learn from mistakes and we learn from mistakes that people have made in other countries and we learn that from, from what people have done well in other countries, you know. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think I think the uh, the key thing is to to try and internalize that sort of uh, um, learning from other countries that otherwise, you know, you have to live through it to learn through it. Otherwise, learn from it the hard way. Otherwise, <laughs> and, and you know, we've all had a crash course in what exponential growth really means uh, <laughs> when uh, having to deal with the the, uh, the virus spreading. Um, let me let me ask you actually. Um, is uh, are either of you going to be involved in any any follow up research on this topic, or is uh, or are you going to be going back to your usual areas of research now? Well, we've I mentioned can't. a couple of limitations <laughs> to our paper, uh, <laughs> and uh, we're sort of uh, trying to resolve, I think, pretty much all of those, um, and in particular, looking at um, more recent data. Right. So, so that's that's the yes you're going to carry on then. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, we we'll have to uh, get you on the podcast again in like six or twelve months and see uh, see how your second stage of research panned out and um, whether whether the uh, interventions that are the most useful in the second wave uh, were the same ones as in the first wave. Um, well- and hopefully we'll be slightly the slightly better position and not like looking back like why do we keep oh, making yeah, yeah, the yeah. same mistake <laughs> <laughs> listen if uh, if uh, we're back in the Alan Turing Institute office in London and uh, obviously you guys are based in Oxford but it's not that far on the train from uh, to Paddington Station from Oxford so uh, you'd be welcome to come in and uh, we can interview in person uh, <laughs> yeah we'd love, we'd love to <laughs> that would be great <laughs> Um, okay, so thanks for having us again. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, before we let you go, I, I, um, we normally ask a, a bonus question at, at the end of uh, each podcast episode on a sort of unrelated topic. Um, this one's actually from Renank um, because when I was doing my sort of background research on both of you, um, I looked up your sort of pages on the Oxford Uni website, um, uh, and one of the things that said on yours, Renank, was that you're someone who's there. Uh, part of the uh, effective altruism community um which i thought was quite interesting um maybe could you tell us our, li- our listeners a bit who maybe aren't aware of what that is um like a little bit about it and like how it might motivate your work and the sort of topics you're interested in yeah so the, the aim aiming like effective altruism is to make sure what what you do has a positive benefit like social impact to uh, for as many people as possible um so i'd say so that's like the, the overarching aim and, and that, that can mean like lots of different things um it, it can mean trying to make sure that in in the future that the ai that we develop is going to be is going to be helpful for us and is going to do what we actually want it to do um it could, it could mean um you know using ai to to help with like climate change um but the, the key thing is, I'd say, is just trying to align your research so you can do like as much good as you can do. So basically, avoid killer AIs and, and homicidal. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty, pretty bad if, if that's what happens. <laughs> I think actually uh, one of the more core focus areas of the effective autism community has been preventing pandemics for quite a long time. <laughs> So, um, yeah, that, that would also, <laughs> that, that, that one didn't work yeah. out, unfortunately, but maybe we'll learn from it now. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I, I find, so uh, it's, it's, I think people tend to in the, in this, uh, community focus on, try to focus on problems that are at the same time really important, could be very tractable, but also are neglected, very neglected how, compared to how important they are. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, cl- clearly, um, pandemics were, um, neglected, uh, or at least neglected enough that, uh, <laughs> we weren't sufficiently prepared for this one. 
um but uh yeah okay well well thanks thanks for that and um uh, before we let you go um let me ask you both um where can people find your work and do you have social media that people can follow uh, you could um you could give me a follow on twitter um hey, at Renan Sharma. Uh, i would i would appreciate that but, um yeah our, our research recently got published in, in in science um so you can go and go and check it out online uh, what's yeah, the, I'm what's also the name, on Twitter. The name of the paper? Uh, remind me of the name of the paper. For uh, remind called, sorry, sorry, you go ahead. <laughs> it's called <laughs> Inferring the Effectiveness of Government Interventions Against COVID-19. And actually, Perfect. as a matter of fact, just today, the final version, science sort of published a pre, pre-version of it. Today, the final version came up, so we had a good date. Fantastic, fantastic. And and Soren, do you have social media that people can follow? Yeah, I mean, I also use Twitter. Um, Soren Minderman is my name. Uh, you find it on paper. Um, I'm not entirely sure what my Twitter handle is. Twitter right, is the social media of scientists. <laughs> it absolutely is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, no one's uh, when I've asked that question, no one's ever been like, "Oh yeah, follow my Instagram, <laughs> <laughs> my TikTok, follow my TikTok." <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, th- thanks again, Renek and Soren, Thank for coming you. on the podcast. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. If you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Cheering Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstry, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jamin Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jaminsun.bandcamp.com.